Welcome back to CFO Weekly, where we're talking with financial leaders about how to build efficiency in their teams, create time for strategy, and ultimately get results with your host, Megan Weiss. Let's jump right in. Today, my guest is Jeff Lasher. Jeff has been a public company CFO twice and is now in his second private company role. While primarily in roles of multi-unit companies, his present position is with a consumer products company that operates globally. He started his career at Ford Motor Company in a variety of finance and marketing operations roles. He continued in automotive-related companies that rented and sold vehicles during his mid-career roles before moving into executive leadership roles. Ten years ago, he was appointed CFO of Crocs, Inc. during a troubled time for the footwear company. The executive team broadened the global reach, developed a strong direct-to-consumer business, and rebuilt the brand. Mr. Lasher then moved to the CFO of West Marine, an outdoor retailer based in Santa Cruz, California. The team there expanded e-commerce operations, built a strong balance sheet through cash management, and focused capital investments that improved operating performance. Following a successful sale to private equity, Mr. Lasher moved back to Colorado and worked for a private equity-backed multi-unit service company. In 2020, that business was rolled up to an automotive services company and went public through an IPO in 2021. Since 2020, Mr. Lasher has led the finance function of Corvin, a private wine accessories business. Recruited to work there by an old colleague, he now leads a global team and is an active part of the executive leadership at Coravin. Hi, Jeff. Thanks for taking the time to be here with us today. Thank you, Megan. It's good to be here. Yeah, as a seasoned CFO with varied experience, I'm really looking forward to getting your perspective on the role and how it differs from one organization to the next, as well as some pointers that have helped you succeed along the way. So let's get started. Great. First of all, tell me about your career progression. How did you get to where you are today? Yeah, I was very fortunate to start off my career at Ford Motor Company and the finance group there, which was really focused on business analysis, planning, resource efficiency. You know, back then it was a great kickoff to my uh, my career. I was focused on developing a solid foundation in financial planning, reporting, analysis, modeling, and data analytics. We just didn't call it data analytics back then. From there, I was put into a a broader general finance leadership role, which gave me exposure to financial systems, processing, and people management after I left Ford. Solid accounting and control experience came later, but I was very fortunate to have multiple years as a corporate controller. And I was given a chance to join a public company as chief accounting officer back in 2009. I moved into the CFO role there uh, about 18 months later in 2010. And 10 years later, you know, 11 years later, I'm in my fourth CFO role now. Each role has been unique. The team makeup of the organization in many ways has dictated that role and uh, what part I played on the executive team. Sounds like you've had a very well-rounded and successful career so far. So are, are there any particular stories or moves that stand out in your mind as real turning points throughout your career? Well, certainly at Ford, you know, a lot of stuff is done for you and the roles are very specific. The fact is you could go an entire career at Ford without actually doing a bank reconciliation or approving an invoice or moving cash to make payroll. My first day after Ford, the story goes, I I had the good fortune of being on the receiving end of some terrific advice from a dear friend of mine that hired me away from Ford, who was the president of the division. 
Uh, the first morning that we worked together, he sat me in his office and he said, you're not a Ford anymore. He went on to coach me that, that, that now the person that pays the bills, runs the payroll, manages the cash, prepares the accounting statements, is sitting across from him. Uh, those were my responsibilities now. In addition, there's, there's no expert on how to do everything. At Ford Motor Company, we had people that had spent decades uh, in very specific support roles and a tremendous experience in things like pricing or sales forecasting, labor management, plant operations, dealership relations. Uh, now the team was looking to me to be the expert. And you need to be able to get up to speed very quickly and learn the business and ask the right questions. And, and that was terrific advice and, and things that I still think back on uh, today. Because since that day, it's it's clear to me that the biggest career transition challenge is moving from a big company to a small company or from a public accounting tra training program into a position at a commercial for-profit business. Today, with the explosion of analyst positions at private equity and venture capital firms, I can imagine that the transition from those roles into a commercial operation is the same as what I dealt with, with going from a big company to a small company. Moving from a place that values modeling and analysis into a less structured firm that has different priorities in addition to planning for growth is a challenge that I imagine people are dealing with as they move from private equity or venture capital firms into private enterprises. Yeah, having made the jump from huge organizations like Accenture and British Petroleum to much smaller companies, I can attest to like how narrow the focus can be at some of those super huge companies. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, um, it's a great experience to have it early in your career to move from a big company to a small company. And I, cer I certainly think that going back from a small company to a big company is just as much of a challenge as you move from a dynamic organization with lots of different things to do to a specialist role, that would be a challenge as well. Um, and I, I imagine some people do that. I have never done that. I've always been moving from uh, bigger companies into smaller and smaller companies because uh, I, I do find the smaller companies really refreshing and, and re really, in, in general, a great place to work as you're defining out the priorities and really looking for how you can add value within the organization. Yeah, definitely agree. So what does your current team do with the organization you're at now? Yeah, the team now is responsible for all the classic functions of finance. So accounting, controls, reporting, analysis, modeling, planning. We spend a, a lot of time analyzing the business. We help the business with pricing, packaging, um, the promotional cadence, the spend that we put, we put forth on the marketing side. Uh, we manage the cash and the tax planning. Globally, we have operations throughout Asia and in Europe. So we have some challenges on the tax side that we have to keep uh, abreast on. And we help the business with the supply chain, the technology and HR side of the administration as well. And we really help to, to plan the non-revenue components of the business in addition to the revenue generation components of the business. Definitely sounds like your team wears multiple hats. Yeah, for sure. You know, as a small company, you have to roll up your sleeves and make things happen some days. Yeah. So as you've detailed, you've worked for a wide range of organizations from big to small and public, private and PE capital backed. So what have you enjoyed about each of those environments and what did you find most challenging? Yeah, it's a great question. Over my years, I have been very fortunate to go from the auto industry to office supplies to footwear 
to retail management and then and into consumer products business again with a much smaller business. The most challenging aspect of smaller firms is also potentially the most rewarding. I think the smaller firms are more stressful. You wear different hats and no two days are the same. We do have a, a rhythm of finance and that's common across most companies, but that rhythm is, disrupt, is disrupted by ad hoc priorities, emergency situations, the real world impact on plans, you know, Brexit, a change in currency, all kinds of different things that can come along uh, and disrupt what you thought was your priority for that day. You know, less, less structure is not for everyone. Uh, a few years ago, I hired an analyst that had the perfect pedigree, a uh, top-notch undergraduate program, an MBA in finance, and a lot of big bank experience that should have been relevant to the position. But he was just didn't make the cut. He just wasn't he wasn't able to make the leap into a less structured environment. He couldn't work effectively in an environment that reprioritized work for him each day. You know, he couldn't work well in an unstructured environment. And although he was incredibly smart, he wasn't able to translate that into cohesive and succinct communication to a leadership team. So, you know, we moved, uh, we moved on and, and he found other places to work. And it was uh, a good outcome for him as he moved into a more structured position over time. And it was a good outcome for the company as we found individuals that were more capable of having those independent positions. You know, as for public versus private, there are clear positives of each and there are different challenges presented by each. At a private company, the emphasis is more cash management, uh, longer term growth and knowing the balance sheet strategy. While those things are important at a public company, the emphasis at a PE firm is really more on planning, analyzing, and planning the business out for EBITDA improvements and quickly adding equity value. The risk and reward approach of a private equity firm is different than a public company. In addition, at a public company, the emphasis can be on, you know, obviously in addition to the more emphasis on uh, controls and accounting processes, stakeholder enrichment is just as important as a shareholder equity uh, creation. Uh, for example, most, most public companies place a higher value on diversity, developing future leaders, societal benefits of the enterprise, and long-term customer value add. Not to say that those aren't important at a public, uh, private, sorry, a PE-backed firm, but in my experience, the value uh, placed on stakeholder enrichment at the median of public companies is significantly higher than the value placed on similar aspects by a private equity firm. ESG reporting is starting to change that, and the shareholders behind private equity uh, will influence that transition. And I think in the future, that will be much more important to PE-backed entities. So I imagine that as you've transitioned amongst all of those different types of organizations, that many of them have, have had drastically different cultures. What is your advice for doing that and successfully transitioning from one culture to another? Well, the, the, the culture of any business is a key success factor of the long-term entity growth and business success. The age-old advice of having the right people on the bus misses the importance of making sure that the people on the bus all have similar principles and objectives. That's critically important in this day and age that we've got a, a well-thought-out mission and guiding principles for the organization that's driving the culture throughout the organization. I've seen cultures ripped apart by too many priorities or a lack of understanding by the senior leaders of what the organization's mission really is. Oftentimes, the leaders have a view of what the mission is and the guiding principles should be, but not actually what they are. Usually there's a, a lack of clarity from the enterprise leader 
I worked for one enterprise. I won't disclose which one it is, but that rolled up a variety of different firms. Some of those firms just didn't fit the culture of the primary part of the business. Everything from travel choices to the quality of marketing messages, the variable compensation plans, the acceptance of employee interactions across the spectrum, all of it was different. Uh, little things like an open office versus a traditional office space make a big difference in the feeling of the environment. The cultures just didn't match across the, the enterprise and therefore the strategy didn't integrate the business in the, and it completely had uh, challenges throughout my term there. In addition, it's critically important to walk the walk yourself. If you state that a guiding principle is being frugal, cost-focused finance or, or cost-focused organization, but you fly around in a private plane, what you're really communicating is far different. Same goes for the mission and the vision of the company. The best implementation of culture was in my outdoor retailing experience, which, which was fantastic. The team enjoyed being outside and using the products that we sold, but we also enjoyed just living the mission that we stated, which was to improve the outdoor experience. We also spent a lot of time together just making sure that the staff up and down the organization embodied the principles. We had weekly staff meetings. We met with everybody after the quarter to walk them through the external reporting. Three or four times a year, we travel around to the stores as a team, as a management team, to learn together and, and see the stores through the, um, the eyes of our customers. You can't say you want teamwork and open communication, but then disallow portions of the team or discourage communication that speaks the truth. And sometimes you have to find ways to break down those barriers and, and get into the locations and really hear what's going on at the uh, uh, customer interaction point. One of the best lessons I learned was to often repeat to the team, this is the way I see it, but I, but I hold that opinion loosely. How do you see it? What's the, data, what's the data that supports that view? What's your opinion? How do the customers look at our business? That culture goes a long way to achieving long-term enterprise value creation. And speaking of culture, so oftentimes CFOs will fail in private equity-backed companies. So as a CFO, how can you tell if you're a good fit for this environment in general? First question. And then specifically, different PE firms seem to prioritize certain skill sets over others, depending on what their specific strengths are themselves. So what is your advice for finding a good fit at a PE firm, if that's the road you should decide to take? Well, for background, I've worked at a few totally different PE firms. In addition, I've talked to 20 or more or 20 or so more about different roles and different ways I could, I could work with them. And, and, and sometimes it just wasn't a fit for me. So I, I'm not making comments that are specific to any one of them. They're all different. They all have different priorities and views. I wouldn't say one is better or best, but it's important to know what the investment thesis is of the private equity firm as they're looking at, at your enterprise that you're looking at joining and how your team fits that thesis. For example, for some private equity firms, the goal is to buy businesses that can they, they can improve the operation and drive equity value creation through cost cuts or expanding margins or running the business more efficient, efficiently. If that's the thesis, how does that impact your finance organization? How is it uh, that your, your finance organization is created in order to create that equity value? For others, it's about revenue growth through brand extensions, product development, and innovation. If that's the mission, then how does that 
how does our team focus on resource management and investment priorities? Another example would be roll-ups, where the goal is to acquire small companies at a lower valuation multiple and integrate them into the main business. Then the emphasis is on systems capabilities, tax structures, and efficiently merging operations together. And the right questions to ask is, how is your team structured in order to achieve those goals? Overall, you need to know what the investment thesis is. Then determine if that is how you see the business needs, and do you agree with that thesis? I've seen a lot of PE firms driving for investment theses from a few years ago that no longer fit the enterprise. It's okay if you disagree. It just may not be the best fit for you if you do disagree. It's unlikely that the CFO of the portfolio business is going to directly impact the thesis and the mission. It's best to find a place that you, you agree. It's also important to know where the company is in the maturity curve of the PE holding period and what their timing looks like. Your job will be very different and the makeup of your, of your team will need to be different depending on where you are in the holding period. You know, traditionally, successful CFOs have some level of balance between the three major functions of finance, accounting, financial planning, and external facing items such as external reporting, M&A, deal-making, bank relationships, and investor relations. Obviously, there are other ways that CFOs create values through tax and treasury, but those three are the backbones of a good, a backbone of a good finance team. So you have to determine what is the most important part of the definition of success. If the CEO and the PE firm's definition of success is closing the books with accuracy, control, and detail, but your experiences in business analysis, data modeling, financial reporting, and planning, it may not be a great fit. Likewise, if the leaders are looking for M&A and growth and leverage opportunities, then being a great operational finance function may result in lack of strengths in the M&A or deal-making side. Finally, the metrics that the PE firm uses to gauge success is critically important. Are they driving for EBITDA growth, sales growth, market share, balance sheet improvement, or some other metric? Timing, maturity, and culture are very important, and it's easy to miss the objective assessments when you're on the outside looking in. Ask questions about the culture. Find out why the previous CFO is no longer there or if there ever was a CFO before. Make sure the overall fit is right. As the CFO, you end up having many groups that you need to fit in with, the CEO, the finance team, the board, the rest of the management team, as well as your own finance team. And how do you see the, the role of finance and how do they define a well-functioning uh, finance team? Just to add one more thing, one other incredibly important thing to remember when jumping from a P, for a PE CFO role, the PE firm is, is making multiple bets across their portfolio. Some of those bets will end up 10 or 20 baggers. Those big return companies offset this more struggling organizations that don't end up having great financial returns to the PE firm. As the CFO of one firm, you only have one bet on the board. That substantially impacts your expected value of returns over your time in exchange for your time, your efforts, and your work. Do your due diligence, ask as many questions as you can, and find the negatives of that business model, the potential threats, the capital structure that could, could impact the results, make an informed decision on the firm that you're joining, not on the private equity firm's results in the past, but that the firm that you are joining at that time. Remember, you're the only one that you know, is moving for that company, likely moving your family and starting a whole new venture that has a high risk level.
Yeah, I mean, I imagine that that role has to be particularly stressful in, in those kinds of environments as well. Absolutely, yeah. And, and managing that stress at a private equity firm is just as challenging as a public uh, entity. It's just different stress levels. And in, in a public entity, it's a 90-day investor relations cycle where you're you know, reading a script for the investor relations side and, and during the earnings release uh, versus a, a PE firm uh, that has a different flow of organizational information. So switching gears a bit, as a seasoned CFO, what is it that you're looking for when you're building your own teams? You know, in a small or mid-sized company, the, the ability to continually learn is critically important. So I look for that in the attributes of the people that I bring on the team. I also look for that in the, in the attributes of the people that are on the team when I first join. But I would say that the four major things I look for, both in, in leadership as well as high growth positions, are number one, the, the ability to learn what you don't know and have an intellectual curiosity level to learn continually. I, you know, I read the, the I read multiple magazines, multiple newspapers. I listen to a number of different podcasts, including yours, to continue to learn about how to be a better CFO. The capability of working independently and having self-motivation is critically important on my teams. You know, the third one is having good communication skills, being able to, to write a coherent email that really gets your point across succinctly. And finally, the proven ability to speak truth to power. One of my favorite interview questions is to ask people, you know, give me an example of when you had a situation where you didn't agree with the direction of the team and you had to state your case and make an argument for why you disagreed with which direction the business was going or that the team was going. That's a terrific uh, uh, recruiting question that I normally ask potential candidates. I had an experience about 10 years ago recruiting straight out of a business school environment. I was looking for people coming out of an MBA program with the ability to hit the ground running in business analysis and planning roles. When I was on campus recruiting, I really loved one particular MBA that had a non-traditional experience. He was right, right about 30 years old and he spent eight years in theater and acting. Uh, and I love the guy, he was fantastic. Great communicator, uh, incredible curiosity level, clearly self-motivated. I brought him into the company for a round of interviews and he's even more dynamic, prepared and excited in that setting. But the team didn't like him as much as I did. They wanted somebody with more experience. They wanted somebody that would be able to add value with the experience and the education that was more relevant to the, to the role. I respected their opinions in the end and we went with a different candidate who had direct finance experience that they valued more. That person didn't work out. They didn't have the, the communication skills we were looking for. They didn't fit the culture and they had an inability to work in an unsupervised, unstructured environment. In retrospect, the team learned that motivation was critical in a, in a candidate. And it's far easier to teach Excel spreadsheet skills than communication skills. I kind of kick myself, you know, in hindsight around not going with the individual. I know that he went on to, to great success in his career, but uh, at the time, you know, that was the decision that we made. And, and it, it just proved again, how important communication skills, curiosity and creativity are to problem solving and to job success. Yeah, definitely. 
And sometimes those unique backgrounds are so valuable, but companies tend to have like a, a job description and many times they have a hard time veering away from, you know, what it is they envision for that specific role. Yeah, one of the things I do to challenge the team is how do we find a good balance between those quantitative capabilities and the ability to run Excel spreadsheets and systems and and the capabilities on the technical side versus the ability to have a good cultural fit in the team and have that intellectual curiosity to continue to drive and learn and look around and see what what uh, what's working best in the organization. So how can we identify our own weaknesses? I feel that people often want to try to surround themselves with other like-minded people, but how can we build a team that will compensate for our own personal weaknesses? And how do we get comfortable with people who might not agree with us or who might outshine us in one way or another? Yeah, it's incredibly important to be self-aware, ask for feedback, but do it in a way that's instantly non-confrontational. If you ask someone how you can improve or what what feedback they would give you, it's always going to be positive. If you ask them with more vulnerability around a desire to understand how you can improve, you'll get more constructive feedback. For example, you can ask the peer leaders, chief operating officers, other SVPs, in your experience, what qualities of a finance team improve the organization the most? How does my team and my and my attributes compare to that experience? What should the team focus on to improve the organizational results? What resources are missing? You know, what areas are over-resourced or too detailed? I've had a number of people over the years that I didn't agree with per se, but asking the right questions and spending time listening uh, can at least bridge that gap. Uh, I've never been too concerned about hiring people that are going to outshine me. You know, my job in a company is to, in part, to recruit the best people. And how do, you know, how do I encourage them to succeed? If that means they're better than me over the long term, that's the best result. If I'm the smartest person on the finance team, then we probably have a big problem. I'd much rather be around people that are pushing the finance team to be better, more efficient, more helpful, and more thorough. Again, that, that intellectual curiosity, bringing that knowledge gained from others to bear at the organization that you're working with. Usually I have a vested interest in the success of the entity. So having a better, more talented team is always beneficial to that financial interest. And as a leader, how can we influence those around us? What skills make someone a better influencer? And can these skills be learned? Or is it something you have to be born with? Yeah, that's an area that's uh, my own personal weakness, you know, to be honest. I, I tend to come off sounding like a professor, and I hope certainly in this interview I'm not coming off sounding like a professor as well. I'm working on it through asking questions, and I was fortunate to have an executive coach about 20 years ago. When the company lined him up, I actually took it as an insult. You know, I didn't, I didn't think I needed an uh, executive coach. What I didn't realize is that my auto industry blood wasn't playing well in a smaller, more collaborative environment that valued teamwork and interpersonal experiences over analytical capabilities. The executive coach was a fantastic experience. It it saved my job at that enterprise and it's paid dividends for the past two decades. And I didn't have to pay a penny for it. And I still remember the key lessons. Number one, ask questions and probe for helpful insight and rationales 
rather than lecturing about a problem and its solutions and reaching a conclusion, it's far better to get the team engaged in problem identification and solutions as a group. Number two, manage the airwaves. Make sure that you have a positive message in addition to challenging the business. Uh, the team long remembers when the CFO celebrates a job well done, way more than when the CFO identifies a problem. Number three, you're always on stage. Uh, one of the big differences between being a VP of finance and, or a controller or uh, leading the tax department and being the CFO is being on stage from the moment you walk in or nowadays from the moment you log into Zoom. Your body language, your actions, your remarks are being watched and amplified. I've too often forgotten that and I've gotten burned. Once when we were rolling out a new software solution, I asked some questions as to why it wasn't hitting the metrics and the team talked about learning curve issues and documentation. I totally quipped and, and lost, uh, uh, lost the control of the airwaves, which when I said that I thought it, 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 it sounded like we weren't doing a great job of training. That rippled through the organization that the CFO complained about the training team. Not completely my intent. <laughs> it, was not, it was about the finance team as much as it was the training team, but the damage was done. So I still struggle with that. And I work hard on that to make sure that I, I recognize that I'm always on stage. Number four, you know, I act presidential and, and people forget that. You have to remember that you're on stage, everyone's looking at you and your buy-in and positive attitude are obvious. You can't tell people to buy into a program or be enthusiastic of a new venture or a new enterprise system without being excited yourself, controlling the emotions, watching your own blood pressure and keeping cool in the face of pressure. And finally, being vulnerable. I learned from a good friend how important it is to have a story to tell about the struggles that you have to, you have to overcome. Being sent to an executive coach is my vulnerable story. But in fact, it's the best thing that ever happened to me. At a young age, I was taught my key ingredients to being a successful executive. Believe me, I've seen way too many leaders that didn't get that experience and it shows. Yeah, those are some really great lessons you got from that coach. Yeah, absolutely. And, and still remember them to this day. It's been almost 20 years. So how can we mentor those who work for us to become the leaders of the future? And what qualities does a good mentor possess? Yeah, I found it it's easier and more rewarding to, to be formally the mentor of people outside of finance. I know that sounds counterintuitive, but I just have found that it's just better to be a mentor outside of the finance function. Not that I don't take it seriously to be a good mentor of, of leaders inside the finance function. And I certainly hope that I've done that and been able to be objective on the outside of, of their career looking in. A lot of non-finance managers struggle with key leadership attributes that their supervisor may not see either. I was put in a position to be a mentor of a product development lead at a former company. She was a tremendously talented designer. Uh, she wanted to move up and to be more general management roles. I coached her on how to get that experience within the company that she needed. That included getting placed on a cross-functional team, and I helped her get that assignment so that she could address data analytics and attend pricing meetings and sales meetings and other things that she was not typically exposed to. I opened doors for her that managers within her department would not be able to open or would not have thought about opening. That led to her development to being a better general manager and got her out of the product development roles that she was. You know, now with the explosion of Coursera and other free educational opportunity, 
there really is no excuse to continually learn and look for opportunities to add value into the organization. I do take mentoring of finance professionals seriously, and I look for opportunities to, to do that. And I certainly hope that I've been a great mentor for those individuals that have worked for me in the past going forward. Yeah, mentoring is so, so important and, and paying it back or paying it forward. And it's something that a lot of us probably forget about in like our busy day-to-day lives. But Absolutely. And, and the need to, you know, just to uh, you know, reemphasize it, to, the need to look for opportunities to help people outside of finance with their finance acumen, to help the organization with diversity and roles in, in the, uh, for, for younger individuals that have less experience and, and putting them into stretch assignments and looking for how the CFO can really add value to the overall enterprise, not just the finance function. So when we last spoke to plan out this podcast, we discussed the idea of being a doer, a manager, a leader, and an advisor, and that it's crucial for a CFO to know which role he or she is playing at different times. Can you expand on this for our listeners? Yeah, with, with small companies, you can't delegate everything, you know, nor really should you. With a small business, it's important that you recognize that what items you can delegate, uh, what is the capacity of the team, and what items should you hold on to? You know, this, this last weekend, I spent time working on the board presentation that we prepared for yesterday's meeting. Uh, I helped with the models. I inserted a few new slides that told the story better. There were a few aspects of the business that I, that I hold as the doer role. Uh, those include variable compensation tracking and hiring planning. Other areas of the business, I, I directly oversee a small team. And other areas, I just serve as an advisor. You know, in my past lives, in some roles, you know, for example, I took ownership of writing quarterly earning scripts. Uh, I've always found it hard to read other people's scripts, and I wanted my own voice to come through uh, those prepared remarks. So I was always the doer of doing the quarterly earning scripts because I found that super important. And how might these roles differ depending on whether or not you're working for a large versus a small company? Yeah, ultimately the importance of being intellectually curious, you know, can't be delegated, right? Asking good probing questions can make a huge difference to the team. You know, as you get into a smaller company, it's more likely that you'll you'll be needed to help or manage areas that are not traditionally finance related, HR, supply chain, IT, pricing, operational cost analysis. But even within big companies, knowing the strategy, knowing the uh, the physicals of the business is always incredibly important. So even in a big role uh, or a big company, the role of being a finance leader needs to be outside of finance in some way, shape or form on a daily basis, as well as focused on the internal machine of running a finance group. Yeah, definitely. Finance cannot be siloed anymore these days, like they could maybe 20 or 30 years ago when they were looking at historical numbers and and that was the extent of the role. It's changed an awful lot. Absolutely. So lastly, now that we're well into 2021, what is one goal, either personal or professionally, that you're hoping to achieve this year? I hope that I take the time to say thank you to people. You know, with with the experience we've all had in the last 12 months of this pandemic, working remotely and and the virtual and real distance in the world right now, we should all be aware of how short our lives are and that nature has different plans for us sometimes. 
I've had so many people help me to get me where I am, get to a place that I'm comfortable and I have a good life. This year, I'd like to thank as many people as I can. And I've quietly been trying to reach out once a month or so and say thank you with a phone call or just an email, just to say thanks. I did send a bunch of gifts last year. That was a nice way to uh, thank the people that helped me in my most recent job pursuit. I guess that was a nice touch. I've made a, a few phone calls most recently to one of the first finance professionals that I met here in Denver 22 years ago, just to say thank you and catch up with him. You know, I really want to take the time to say thank you to people that are not just bosses or mentors, but it's, it's like the coach of my stepson's baseball team that found a role for me as coach when I was in between jobs a few years ago. Not only that, but he, but he squeezed in some motivational messages to me uh, to encourage me to find the right next path to take. It's the marketing leader of a company from 10 years ago that recently just got promoted to CEO, a guy that was always quick-witted, positive, and encouraging to me when I needed a lift. You know, and being able to say thank you to him is just incredibly important. You know, with LinkedIn these days, sending a quick LinkedIn message, I, I just think it goes a long way to say thank you to people. The fact is so many people make a huge difference and I, for one, don't say thank you enough. Yeah, what a beautiful goal. I mean, this last 12 months have been so hard on so many people and, and like small acts of kindness go a long, long way. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there, there are people like, uh, there was a, there's an individual now that's running one of the largest, he's the CEO of one of the largest restaurant companies in the world. You know, 27 years ago, he let me cheat off of some of his models and presentation materials. And he really coached me when I needed it. And we were just both starting out our careers in downtown Detroit. And, and he just made a huge difference in, in my trajectory of my career. And I, and I you know, uh, to be able to thank him goes a long way and, and it makes me feel good, right? Because uh, those are the people that helped me get to where I am. So Jeff, I'd like to say thank you for joining me today. <laughs> yeah, thank you for the opportunity. Yeah, I've enjoyed speaking with you and hearing about your extensive experience. And thank you so much for sharing what you've learned along the way with us. I'm certain your advice will benefit our listeners, whether they're looking to improve performance where they are, or maybe considering their next career move. You've given us some great tips on how to be successful. To all thank of you. our listeners, I hope you've enjoyed this episode as well. Please tune in next week. And until then, take care of yourselves. If you're ready to boost efficiency and streamline your accounting processes at significant cost savings, it's time to talk with Personiv. Their people-powered solutions have transformed the delivery of back office tasks and general accounting functions for decades, partnering with clients to provide everything from accounts payable to payroll services. See what Personiv can do for you by visiting personiv.com. You've been listening to CFO Weekly presented by Personiv. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to hear all of our episodes. Want to learn more? Check out personive.com. Thanks for listening.